Antic Heart, Chapter 5. Pettigrew is a tall, rather serious woman, but she welcomes me pleasantly enough, and the chicken in tarragon sauce she serves is good. Afterwards, we eat gooseberry fall served with spoonfuls of yellow cream. We are served by an elderly maidservant called Nellie, who hobbles between us, stopping every now and then to catch her breath. Girl eats chicken from a bowl beside the table and gets under Nellie's feet. Every now and then she kicks him away, none too gently. Mistress Pettigrew tells me that her son John is away at present and that she needs help to sort out her husband's affairs. What a dear man he was, she says, dabbing at her eyes with a clean handkerchief. Now her face looks softer and I warmed to her. We did not always have an easy marriage, she explains, but through it all there was love. Behind her, Nellie pulls a face at me, which indicates that this was not always true. Both Nellie and her mistress are dressed in plain black gowns, and I am immediately glad of my borrowed clothes. In my French-cut coat, I would have looked far too raffish for this modest household. I spend the evening listening to Mistress Pettigrew's tales of her son. She is very proud of him, but confides that he finds it hard to see other people's points of view. For instance, this terrible civil war we've had, Henry. We are a household that is for Parliament, always have been. But John can never accept that some royalists are actually very pleasant. Nellie looks again at me, arching her eyebrows. Now the late king was wrong, as my husband used to tell me. But he was such a loving father. And whether you like bishops or not, he was truly religious. Doesn't that count for something? Tears come into Mistress, Mistress Pettigrew's eyes and she dabs at them again. I cannot tell if she's grieving for the king or for her husband, and maybe it doesn't matter. Like so many people, she hates the fact that during the war, neighbours became enemies. So many people died, she muses, and they were all our people, English people. She shakes her head. I pray every night for peace, she confides. Soon, she has told me that her given name is Judith, which I may use when we are not in company, that she loves little dogs and that she is partial to a small nip of brandy before bed for medicinal purposes. Over the next few days, Girl and I find our way around. 
Mistress Pettigrew lives in a fine three-storey house, built towards the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign. Just outside the city wall, it looks out over more fields, where there are new houses being built alongside the moor. Beyond are orchards, grazing for cattle, and small farms growing vegetables. Early every morning, the street in front of the house is noisy with carts supplying the fruit, vegetables and milk for the capital's growing population. At the same time, Girl and I get up. I walk him down through the fields and back. After I have washed my face and made myself respectable for a lady's table, I eat breakfast with Judith Pettigrew before we start work. On our first morning, I find a mountain of papers scattered wildly over Pettigrew's desk. Master Pettigrew had been a cloth merchant who imported materials from Europe. After his death, the shop has been run by an assistant, but there are unpaid bills to be met and new orders to be placed. While I wait for Judith Pettigrew, I start to sort the papers out, bills, accounts, letters. I have made little headway before she enters, trailing girl in her wake. Truly, I make a note to myself, a little dog is very much liked by the ladies. Judith Pettigrew looks at the papers and sits down heavily opposite the desk. I am thankful to the Earl of Leicester for sending you to me. As you can see, I am overwhelmed with it all. The grief is terrible. And all of this paper, without even a man to help me. You're most welcome, Henry Nash, I assure you. I ask her what papers I should deal with first and start to put them into a pile in front of me. Shall I read them out, madam, and then you can tell me what you wish to do? She nods to this and sits back in her chair. After some minutes, I start to read some of the most pressing documents. We manage to make decisions on four, and then Judith Pettigrew fidgets on her chair. Come, Henry, enough work for now. I want to show you my garden. Let us take girl with us. And so the three of us leave the study and walk downstairs and outside to the gardens at the back. There is an orchard with apple and plum trees in bloom and we stroll under the blossom with girls snuffling at our feet. Grief is a terrible thing, Henry, she remarks. Without my William, I'm quite lost. What a man he was. When I wake up, every morning and realise that God has taken him. It's like a black cloud descending on me. Sometimes I cannot face living, though I must. Tell me, Henry, have you experienced grief? I want to shout that, yes, indeed, I have suffered grief and fear and insecurity that she would not understand. But I calm myself and answer gently. Yes, madam. My father died when I was twelve. I was left with only my mother. I understand the desolation you must be feeling. It is so very hard, Henry, she says consolingly. I'm glad you understand. 
and you so young. So how did your father die? I composed myself and answered gravely. He was killed at Naseby, madam. He was just a country gentleman following the orders of his king. I hope you do not dislike me because of that. She turns and places her hand on mine. Unlike Lucy's, her hand has seen hard work and her skin is dry and warm. I've taken a risk in telling her the truth, but from what I know, she will accept my past. And, I reason, it will make future conversations about the present king much easier. I'm right. She is sympathetic. Henry, I could not dislike you. Be assured, it matters not to me what side your father fought on. We are all of us English, and we have to make peace with each other and forget old wounds. She squeezes my hand and then releases it. I smile sorrowfully at her. Thank you, madam. That's very kind of you, and it means so much to me. I will work hard for you, and soon your affairs will be in order, I promise. A weak smile crosses her face. I hope not too soon, she says shyly, and for the first time I catch a glimpse of the girl she used to be. I love the women I meet. I do not despise them, not at all. I know how hard it is to be a woman in our times. Yes, there are unusual women, like Lucy, but mostly they are controlled by men. They are constrained by talk of reputation, and they cannot travel and work freely as I can. So I am kind, so far as possible. We work well together, Judith Pettigrew and me. When I explain accounting, she picks it up quickly and soon has an idea of her business's incomings and outgoings. We sit together in the study, poring over the books, while she reads out each line, tracing underneath it with her index finger. A stray curl of hair has escaped from under her coif. Of course, unlike the royalist women, she still wears a linen cap to cover her hair. I reach out across the books and gently tuck it back into the coif. She jumps up from her chair. Have I misjudged her? Did I act too soon? Madam, I'm sorry if I offended you. It was simply what I would do for my own mother to save her from embarrassment. She instinctively puts her hand up to her coif and checks that her hair is all covered. Her face is flushed and I curse myself for acting too soon. Thank you, Henry. I understand. I'm touched. Really, I am. But you shouldn't. My son. I look at her and realise that she did not dislike my touch, but is concerned about her son. Your son? I prompt gently. Yes, indeed. He will not approve of our closeness, she says breathlessly. He is very concerned about propriety. He's a good son, mistress, and he need not worry that I will dishonour you. You can tell him I think of you as a mother. She blushes bright pink now and says hastily, I think 
maybe not, Henry. Just to warn you, I will be more formal when he is in the house. I nod, understanding that our friendship is just between the two of us. In front of others, her relationship to me will always be that of mistress and servant. One evening, she calls me to sit beside her on the settle by the fire. Henry, I have something to show you. She looks around her to check no one is approaching and pulls out a small object wrapped in a linen handkerchief. I bend forward, intrigued. Your father was a royalist, was he not? Maybe he would have appreciated this treasure. Her breath is coming quite hard now, and her hands tremble, but she is determined that I should share this secret. She unwraps the linen, pausing to gauge my expression. I gasp. Inside is a small miniature painting, captured in a silver locket. The subject of the portrait is a slim-faced man with mousy brown hair, a large hat and a pointed beard. But this is the dead king, I whisper. How did you get this? She looks around again before answering. My son John, he has sometimes had the instruction to clear the house of an unrepentant royalist, you know, one who won't accept things as they are now. Well, one lady had a small box of jewellery, nothing too expensive. All the gold went to be melted down, but John saved me the locket and a couple of silver rings. He loves his mother. She smiles at the thought. He never looked in the locket, never saw what was inside. But when I looked, I realised this was a message from God for me. I nod, trying to keep my face calm. What was that message, mistress? I asked gently. You may know, she says. I have often spoken of the dead king and what he meant to me. Once, when I was a young girl, I saw him riding through London. I just felt a warmth in me towards him. Of course, he was handsome. She pauses and a smile spreads across her lips. I was giddy then. I fell in love with him, no question. I wasn't married then and I'd tell my mother I was going to the market for something, a new koi of some apples, anything. But then I'd walk to Whitehall and wait around in case I could see him. He was often about, sometimes with his wife, Henrietta Maria, sometimes walking with gentlemen of the court. I tried always to catch his eye, but he was always busy. Once I saw him walking with his spaniels and I cried out that I loved his dogs. He smiled directly at me and I felt myself light up in a way I never have before. After that, he became a part of my life. I would buy all the news sheets about what was happening just to know about him. I knew about his wife and the children and what the royal family liked to do. It's just my major interest. She smiles at the memory, but then the smile dies down. And then I was married. 
and all of that stopped. My husband, William, would never have allowed it. I never even told him. I was scared he would say that I was a lustful, sinful woman. But you were not lustful, mistress. You simply admired your king, I say gently. A tear comes into her eye and she rubs at it with her hand. He was a good man, William, but difficult to live with, she says. He was religious and it was important to him to keep a godly household. She looks down at the table, lost in her thoughts. Then she looks up and adds quickly, Not that I don't run a goodly household, you understand. We read the Bible every day and we conduct ourselves according to the teaching of Jesus. Of course you do, mistress, I reassure her. As a young gentleman, I was recommended to you. I would not want to work in an ungodly house. Judith Pettigrew beams. I knew it, Henry. You are religious too. And you will know that the king was not an ungodly person. He was such a lovely man and his children were also handsome. Handsome and healthy too, all surviving. I lost a couple of babies before I had John. It is a blessing to have live children. We hear a banging from downstairs and the sound of Nellie's dragging feet as she hurries to the door. A male voice cries out, Well met, Nellie. Will you get the man to stable my horse? How is my mother? Is she well? We hear Nellie talking to him. Why, Master John, don't you look grand? You are thin, see your face. Are they feeding you properly in the army? Wait, let me get the stable boy for your horse. Judith Pettigrew tenses and picks up the locket, shuts it and hangs it around her neck, under her dress. She is smiling tightly. That is John, my son, she says. Get your work out, Henry. Start to write that letter we've discussed. We had not discussed a letter, but I understood her need to show my position in the house. The front door bangs shut and we hear footsteps running up the stairs. Mother, where are you? His voice is educated, that of a gentleman. Here, in the study, she calls. The door bursts open. John Pettigrew is a tall man, aged maybe about 20. He is dressed in the uniform of an officer in the Parliamentary Army. His linen is crisp and his jacket well made. He looks at me questioningly. Girl rises his head and looks at the young man. But then his ears flatten against his head and he starts to growl. John Pettigrew pushes him with his boot walks up to my desk and stands over me. And who are you, young man? Girl continues to growl, but he's afraid of the big young man, and so he shrinks back under the desk. John, this is Henry Nash, his mother introduces me, fluttering around her son. He has come to help me sort out the business correspondence. He's a wonderful worker. He was recommended by the Earl of Leicester. I move from the desk and bow to him. He looks at me sourly. Earl of Leicester? He's one of the old royalists. He just swims with the tide. Still, 
He's with us now. Make sure you work hard, young man. I'll be watching you. I will, sir, I say, looking him in the eye. He is handsome and very sure of himself. I sense that he is suspicious of me. Maybe he realises that I am not what I seem. John, have you eaten? Let us leave Henry to work and go to the parlour. You can have a tankard of ale. You must be thirsty. Judith Pettigrew ushers her son out of the room. He turns at the door and gives me one hard backward look. I'm going to have to be very careful with this young man, I can see. John is staying with his mother for a week. I chafe at being unable to pursue my mission, but it would be too risky with him about. So I content myself with writing to suppliers and getting the accounts in order. I do not see much of Judith. She and John eat alone together in the parlour, while I join Nellie in the kitchen. Girl spends most of his time with Nellie, as whenever he sees John Pettigrew, his hackles rise. All the other members of the household run about after John, fetching him beer, tobacco, sheep's cheese, whatever he requests. In the evenings he reads to his mother from the Bible. His voice is loud. I can hear it from the study, with just occasional murmurs from his mother. I find myself disliking him intensely. I know she would rather be playing cards or talking about the dead king. But she loves her son and she wants him to see her as the kind of woman he would approve of. I count the days until the week is up and I can resume my mission with Judith. I know my task is to divest her of some valuables, but I am certain that I will give her a happier time than she is having at the moment. On the day of John returning to the army, the household bustles around him. Clean linen, sweetmeats and tobacco are packed for him and his Bible is returned from the parlour to his saddlebags. His horse is brushed, well fed and rested, his saddle, reins and bridle polished until they shine. I am asked by Nellie to take him down a flagon of beer while she packs some bread and cheese for his journey. I go down to the hall where he is waiting with his mother. They talk quietly together while the stable boy stands with his horse. Judith Pettigrew makes to kiss her son, but then remembers something. She runs upstairs to fetch a handkerchief which she has embroidered for him. I hold out the flagon for him without speaking. He takes it and then grabs my shoulder. I don't trust you, Henry, he hisses. There's something about you that I don't understand. My mother tells me you're good at your job, but let me tell you this. If you betray her trust, you answer to me. His hand tightens until he's gripping my arm like a vice. He pushes his face against mine. I will know, he says, and I will come after you, I promise. You promise what, dear John? His mother cries. I hope it is that you will return soon, my son. John lets go of my arm suddenly and turns to his mother. I do not know, mother. We have a war with the Dutch looming, but it may not be for some time. But remember, if you need help, there are people who can give it. I wonder who he means. It sounds like John has contacts nearby. But who? 
John kisses his mother and strides out towards his horse. Before he mounts, he turns back and gives me a menacing look. I resist the temptation to put two fingers up at him and turn to go back into the study. Judith follows me, running to catch up. He's gone, and only God will be able to deliver him safe back to me. I cannot bear it. I turn back, take her gently by the elbow, and lead her into the parlour. Come, sit down, mistress. You should take a small glass of wine. I coax her into the chair. We don't have wine here, Henry. We're a godly house. But a glass of small beer would be acceptable. She puts her hands into her lap and bows her head. I go to the door and call Nellie. Two glasses of small beer and some biscuits, Nellie. The servant looks at me as if I had gone mad, issuing her with orders. But when she sees her mistress, she understands. Very well, Master Nash, I'll have them here directly. I pull up a chair next to Judith Pettigrew and take her hand in mine. It's hard, I know, mistress, but he will be in God's hands. I speak softly, like a mother to a child. Oh, Henry, was it like this for your mother when you left? She cries out. Did she feel her heart was ripped out of her? I register that this is good. If Judith's heart has been torn out, there is space for Orlando in there. Yes, mistress, she did. But I reckon there was never a mother as devoted as you are, not even my own. Good, good. She is smiling through her tears. And your mother at least knows that you are safe, she says. Whereas my John, I fear for him every night. Little do you know, I think, about the dangers my mother fears for me. Nellie appears with a tray with two tankards of beer and a plate of biscuits. She glances sourly at us, realising that Judith Pettigrew's hand is resting in mine. Will that be all, mistress? she asks. Do you have everything you need? Judith Pettigrew flushes a deep red. Thank you, Nellie. Put that down on the table. Master Nash here was just comforting me. Why, I nearly collapsed with grief. It's all too much. Nellie looked unconcerned. I'll get down to the kitchen then, she says. Will you be taking dinner today, mistress? Yes, Nellie, Judith Pettigrew replies. See if you can buy some ripe plums in the market today. I need something delicate to nourish me and prevent a relapse into that deadly grief. Nellie wrinkles her nose, curtsies, and leaves the room, muttering something about it being too early in the season. We sit for a moment, Judith and me, holding hands. Then carefully, I release my hand, pick up a tankard, and place it in hers. Drink, mistress. You've cried so much today. You have wept a river. She smiles at me over the top of her tankard and takes a sip. Thank you, Henry. You're so thoughtful. I pick my own tankard up and taste the beer. It is the normal brew that they drink every day, but I make a face. Mistress, this beer has gone bad. It tastes of slops. 
I set it down on the table forcefully. Oh, Henry, I'm sorry. It tastes all right to me, but my senses are numbed today. I take the tankard from her. I cannot allow you to drink this, mistress. Your constitution being so frail today, you may take to your bed and never recover. I will tell Nellie to fetch us some wine. It is a necessary treatment, mistress, for your low spirits. Judith Pettigrew looks up at me as if to object, but she stays silent. I stride to the door and call Nellie. After a couple of minutes, she appears, looking annoyed. I call out an order, as a gentleman would. I have to appear confident and in control. Go and fetch some of the finest Rhenish. Your mistress is ill and she needs a tonic. Nellie looks at me dubiously. Why? She's like this twice a day sometimes. She don't need wine. I'm telling you, Nellie, she does. Now get along and fetch some. Don't keep us waiting. Nellie looks at her mistress, but Judith Pettigrew simply nods. There is a moment of silence. Nellie, do as Henry tells you, Judith says. He has my welfare at heart. Nellie holds her hand out. I'll need some money. I don't have the cash to buy wine, as you well know. Here you are. Judith Pettigrew digs into her pouch for some coins and passes them over. Nellie examines the coins and then leaves the room, trailing an air of displeasure behind her. And do not dally, I shout after her. I'm rather enjoying being a gentleman. My father was a country squire. Yes, a gentleman, but not one used to giving orders. Whereas I seem to have a knack with it. After an hour, Nellie reappears with the wine and a couple of goblets, which she plonks down on the table without ceremony. Here you are, mistress. Now, if you'll allow me, I have the dinner to prepare. She turns and leaves without looking back. Judith and I had been talking, mainly about her son, how he had nearly died when he was born, what an excellent scholar he was, and how his schoolmasters had all predicted great things for him. It comforts her to talk, and she starts to become more animated. I open the wine and pour two goblets. She takes hers and sips at it eagerly. This wine was one of King Charles's favourites, I have heard, I say. I've heard no such thing, but it is a way of steering the conversation. Judith drinks deeply from her goblet. I agree with you, mistress. King Charles was a godly man. And what harm is there in wine? I smile at her reassuringly. We used to have wine at my father's house, she reminisces. It would always make me sleepy. A sleep would do you no harm, mistress, given the great shock to your system, I tell her. Drink your goblet and let me lay you upon your bed just for a short rest. I'm getting into risky territory here, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. To my surprise, she allows me to take her into her bedchamber and help her onto the bed. Now was not the time to seduce her, but to make my presence in her chamber seem normal. 
I sit on a chair beside the bed. I wonder what King Charles would be like now, were he to have lived, I say musingly. He would have worked it out with Parliament. I'm sure of that, she says. Her voice is warm, but she is not slurring her words. Would that have been a good thing, mistress? I ask gently. Yes, indeed, Henry, it would. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. I assure her that she is not. But we need a king and we need a parliament. On that day he died, I wept. I could not bear it, even though William told me not to be silly. She pauses, sitting upright on the bed. I've something to show you, Henry, she whispers. No one else must know. I assure her that I will tell no one. Treating it as if it is very precious, she holds it by its tip and hands it to me. I take it reverently, although I am not normally enthralled by dirty linen. See, this is King Charles's blood, she whispers. After he died, I came across a lad in the market selling handkerchiefs that had been dipped in his dying blood. I was with William, but I slipped out of the house later and bought one. Sometimes I wear it next to my heart. She takes the handkerchief and stuffs it down her bosom. I wonder if she knows that it is likely to be a fake. The blood that she reveres probably came from a January slaughtered pig. I would not disillusion her, though and allow my own eyes to become wet with tears. So, what is to do, mistress? Should we all follow Oliver Cromwell now? Maybe he will make himself a king soon. Judith shakes her head vigorously. No, no, he is no king. If we are to have a king, it should be King Charles's son. I could not bear to see Oliver Cromwell wear the crown. Suddenly she realises what she's saying, and looks at me, alarmed. Do not say anything to John about this. He would be so angry. Mistress, your thoughts are your own, I tell her. He cannot censor them, much as he may try. He is a good boy, a very good boy, but he's too extreme. He's young, you know. He hasn't had a chance to learn about the world. I nod sympathetically although I believe that John Pettigrew could never be the good boy of her imaginings. I promise you, mistress, this will be our secret. It will be something special between us. No one else will know. She smiles, satisfied, and then yawns. I see her crooked teeth crowded into her mouth and feel ashamed. But I remind myself this old lady will have an experience that gives her pleasure for the rest of her life. I may explore her jewellery box, but I will not humiliate her. Now, Judith, I use her name as a prelude to intimacy. You must sleep for an hour or so. I will wake you before dinner. She looks at me trustingly and then lies down. You are right, Henry. I need to rest. Stay with me until I am asleep. <laughs>